healer of diseases, master of nature, conqueror of demons and death. Jesus not only preached the kingdom of God in words, but He demonstrated it in power through His miraculous works. As we continue our year-long quest to get to know Jesus through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, today we begin a new series of lessons on the miracles of Jesus. Over the next couple of months, we're going to take an in-depth look at eight of Jesus' miracles that will open our eyes to their impact on the lives He touched, that will reveal God's heart and their significance to us today. Now the four Gospels record 34 different miracles of Jesus. You'll find them listed in their probable chronological order on the supplemental lesson notes in today's Lesson, don't you dare look at that now. (laughs) Study that on your own later. Understand that no gospel writer includes all 34 of them. A few miracles are recorded in all four of the gospels. Some are included in two or three of the gospels, while others are found in only one of the gospels. But in truth, These 34 miracles are not the only miracles that Jesus performed. In fact, John 20 verse 30 tells us Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not recorded in this book. And then in John 21 and verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Before we dig into today's text and our study of Jesus' very first miracle, I think we have to answer some preliminary questions. For instance, what is a miracle? A popular but I think incorrect definition is to say that a miracle is a point in time in which God intervenes in the world. I believe the definition falls short because it implies that God only occasionally intervenes in the world. I think a better definition would be a miracle happens when God, who is continuously active in the world, breaks with His usual pattern and does something extraordinary and supernatural. I mean, just think this through with me for a minute. If God exists, then miracles must exist. Because if God is, then God does. We should not be surprised when we pick up our Bible to find miracles. On the contrary, if we allow for God, then we must allow for God to act. And when He acts, because He Himself is Creator and not limited by the natural law and order that He Himself created, we should expect that His works and deeds would be extraordinary and supernatural. Yes, most of the time, He chooses to operate within the boundaries of natural law and order. But we should not be shocked when He chooses to act outside the natural and does something that is supernatural. I mean, He's God. Does that make sense? 
And so the first preliminary question is, what is a miracle? And the definition that we framed for this series of lessons is, a miracle happens when God, who is continuously active in the world, breaks with His usual pattern and does something extraordinary and supernatural. Now the next preliminary question is, why miracles? What's the purpose of miracles? We must understand that, in fact, miracles are purposeful. God doesn't do things in an irrational, nonsensical, haphazard way. No. Each and every miracle recorded in the Bible had a purpose. And of course, this was true with the miracles of Jesus. I mean, if Jesus' miracles were only to heal the sick, deliver the demon-possessed, and raise the dead, then He would have healed and delivered and raised everybody. But instead, in His sovereignty... And by His purpose, He selectively performed miracles for a purpose. When He turned water into wine or calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee or walked on water or fed a multitude or cursed a fig tree, He had a distinct reason for doing so. Actually, we touched on His overall purpose last Sunday in our last I Am study of Jesus' miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus Himself said in John 11 and verse 4, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And we'll see it again at the end of today's text, John 2 and verse 11. What Jesus did here in Canaan of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory and His disciples believed in Him. And over and over again, the Gospels remind us that the purpose of the miracles of Jesus was to reveal His glory so that we would believe in Him. Again, John's Gospel puts it this way in John 20 and verse 31. Immediately after reminding us that Jesus performed many other miracles that are not recorded in the Gospels, John writes, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so the second preliminary question is, why miracles? And if I could sum it up in a sentence, I would say the purpose of miracles is this. Fill in the blanks there in your notes. Jesus works. Authenticate Jesus' words. Jesus works. Authenticate Jesus' words. Simply put, we believe who Jesus is and what He said because of what He did. His miracles. Now, Having laid that foundation, let's take an in-depth look at Jesus' first miracle this morning, that of turning water into wine. Let's begin by looking at the Scripture together. But before we work our way through these first 11 verses of John 2, let's pause and ask God to speak to us clearly from His Word. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, We sit at Your feet to learn from You and of You today. So open our eyes that we would see. Open our ears that we would hear. Open our minds so we could understand. Open our hearts that we would receive the truth and plant it there, that it would produce fruit in us 
Reveal Yourself to us in a fresh and new way today, Jesus. That we might know You better. That we might know You deeper. Teach us, O Lord. We pray it in Your precious name. Amen. I think it's important before we work our way through John 2 verses 1 through 11 that we understand the context, the setting, if you will, of today's text. Chapter 1 of John's Gospel is a threefold testimony to Jesus. And it begins with the Apostle John's own inspired testimony in verses 1 through 18. How Jesus is the eternal Word, the light and life of humankind. Perhaps the climatic verse is John 1 and verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the next testimony is from John the Baptist, the cousin to and the forerunner of Jesus. In verses 19 through 34 of John 1, he explains how John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' ministry. How he passed the baton, so to speak, from himself to Jesus. In his own words, as he baptized and introduced Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. And then John 1 ends with a testimony of five of John the Baptist followers who left him to follow Jesus. Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, and Nathaniel. These are the first five apostles, by the way, that Jesus called to follow him. And perhaps Nathaniel's testimony in John 1 and verse 49 sums up their faith in Jesus the best. Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So, with that in mind, then that brings us to chapter 2. So, follow along in your Bible as I read verses 1 and 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and His disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And so verse 1 begins, on the third day. We would take that to be the third day since Jesus' baptism. The third day since the beginning of His public ministry. The third day since these five apostles had begun to follow Him. Now evidently, Jesus and these five disciples, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, had been invited to a wedding. Where? At Cana in Galilee. Now Cana was a little village about nine miles to the north of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. John 21 and verse 2 tells us that this was actually Nathaniel's, one of these five. It was his hometown. It was a very, very, very small village, perhaps just a handful of families who migrated out of Nazareth and settled in this area because this is where they were farming. And if we read between the lines here, this was a family wedding. Most likely, Jesus, His mother, and Nathaniel at least, were here because they were somehow related to the bride and the groom and their families. Now please understand that 
Jewish weddings at this time were a major event, often lasting a full week, seven days. About a year earlier, this couple had been officially betrothed. This was a legal binding covenant that could only be broken by divorce. But the marriage wasn't final. It wasn't consummated until after this wedding feast and party was over. So what was going on in that year between betrothal and wedding? Well, the husband was preparing a place for his bride. He was building a house for her, literally, extending his father's house up or out. The bridegroom, you see, had to make all those preparations. In fact, he was responsible even for all of the expenses of the wedding. His job was to get everything ready. He built and furnished the house. He made all the necessary preparations for this week-long wedding feast. This was his way, you see, of proving that he could provide for his wife. And once the task was completed, he would then go to his bride's house, he would fetch her and lead a procession back to his and her new house for this party. And so now the wedding is in full swing, which brings us to verse 3. Look at it with me. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Don't overlook those words, by the way. When the wine was gone. This was a major disaster for the groom. This was a social faux pas for the husband-to-be's family. To run out of wine at any social event, but especially at a wedding, could result in lifelong shame and embarrassment, not only for this young couple, but for both of their families. Now, i got to at least say something about wine. <laughs> Wine was the staple drink of the ancient world. On the one hand, to quench your thirst with water was dangerous because water was not purified. I mean, you understand that contaminated water is still a huge issue, especially in third world countries today. On the other hand, to quench your thirst with fermented wine was dangerous because you could get drunk. (laughs) You didn't want to be sick and you didn't want to sin, so the way they dealt with that in the first century was to dilute the water with wine or to dilute the wine with water, whichever way you want to look at it. After it was squeezed, you've got to understand, the grape juice would then be boiled down into a very thick syrup. And this substance was then stored in new wineskins. And then when the occasion called for it, such as this wedding celebration, the kneaded syrup was squeezed out of the wineskins into a pitcher or a jug and would be reconstituted as a drink by adding anywhere from three to ten parts water to one part syrup. (laughs) And therefore it was evidently this thick syrup, this wine base that had run out in today's Story. Now, why Mary, Jesus' mother, was concerned with the matter, we don't really know for sure. There is an early 3rd century document that informs us that she was actually the, groom, the groom's aunt. 
Highly possible. Again, if this was a family affair, perhaps she was helping out with the food and the wine. Maybe she was serving in the kitchen. Wouldn't that be what an aunt would do? But let's move on with today's story. We come to verse 4. Look at it with me. Woman, Jesus says, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Woman? Now, at first glance, that may appear to be a little disrespectful, especially to His mother. But actually, it's the same word that Jesus spoke to Mary from the cross with endearment in John 19 and verse 26 when He said, Woman, behold your son as He entrusted Mary's future care to the Apostle John. Remember that? Perhaps more than anything, He was speaking to Mary from a different perspective or position here. With his father Joseph out of the picture, he had evidently died some years earlier, Jesus, as the oldest male, had been forced to step up into the role of the head of family. And in this role, Jesus still clearly put himself under Mary's authority as his mother. But now, as he's beginning his public ministry, Jesus' role shifts to his destiny to be the Savior and Lord of all humankind. Now he must totally and completely be focused on why he came to earth in the first place. Now he must be only about his Father, God's business. He's finished, you see, with his mother's business. She's no longer in a position to tell him what to do. His living in submission, those years of living in submission to her earthly authority are over. From here on out, he is under his father's authority only. So calling Mary woman here shows that she's no longer dealing with her son. She's now dealing with God's son. Why do you involve me, Jesus asked. Literally, the Greek word reads, what to me and you? What to me and you? Simply put, how's this concern of yours a concern of mine? (laughs) And then notice that Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. This is the first time that Jesus makes this statement, by the way. But it won't be the last. Many times throughout His ministry, Jesus said something similar. My time has not yet come. It's a phrase that in its fullness, of course, looks to the cross. To the hour of His death and resurrection. But right here now, He is in essence saying, this isn't in God's divine timetable for me. (laughs) Yet notice what Mary says in verse 5. Look at it with me. His mother said to the servants, do whatever He tells you. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I love it. I mean, Mary is gracefully accepting Jesus' mild rebuke, and yet in typical Jewish mother fashion here, as she steps away from the scene, she whispers to those servants, Do whatever He asks you. It'll be okay. So let's continue. See what happens in verses 6 and 7. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now two things right off the top here. First, Jesus submits to his mother anyway. Okay? And second, Jesus' hour had evidently come. 
Hmm? I don't know. Maybe Mary kind of pushed it a little bit, but it was the beginning of His ministry. Now, these six stone water jars would have been used by the people who attended the wedding before they ate. According to Mark 7 and verse 3, Jewish tradition required a ceremonial washing of the hands before each meal. This purpose of this washing was not so much hygienic as it was religious. The symbolism had more to do with being clean on the inside than on removing dirt from the hands. Holding between 20 to 30 gallons each, notice that the servants filled them to the what? Brim. Yeah, I want you to see that. Don't miss it. A detail that John records for a reason. All the way to the top. That's significant because all that was put into these jars, you understand, is water. No room for the wine reduction or syrup. No chance that anyone could mistake what was about to happen for anything else other than a miracle. 120 to 180 gallons of nothing but water. Which brings us to verses 8 through 10. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Can you imagine? And it says, they did so. I kind of going, if I'd been one of those servants, I'd be going, you know. Verse 9 And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. <laughs> Don't miss that last phrase. You have saved the best till now. Well, of course. Would we expect anything else from Jesus? Now, I've got to simply ask a couple of questions at this point. Perhaps you've already wondered this as we've been reading through today's text. Why did Jesus perform His very first miracle at a wedding in some little spot in the road called Cana? I mean, why not at one of the major feasts in Jerusalem? And, and why would this first miracle be that of turning water into wine? Why not something a little higher profile like raising someone from the dead? Now, time doesn't allow me to really go into a long explanation, and there is a long one <laughs> in answer to this question, but rest assured there is a distinct purpose here. This miracle was not accidental. In Matthew 22 and verse 2, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Did you catch that? The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding banquet. In fact, the Jews expected that the coming Messiah would usher in His kingdom with a great wedding feast. 
And from prophecies like those in Isaiah 25 and Jeremiah 31 and Amos 9, you can look them up later, they understood that at last the Messianic kingdom would be one that would be overflowing with an abundance of wine, which meant joy and peace and yeah. Now obviously Jesus knew that. And so symbolically Jesus is saying, <clears throat> the Messiah is here. <laughs> the kingdom has arrived. <laughs> now, did anyone in the wedding party get that symbolism? Well, it seems like the five apostles at least understood something. Look at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which He revealed His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. Yeah, they had some understanding at least. Well, let's look at the Scripture. Now, what lessons can we learn from our study together? Water into wine. As I studied this text this week, there were many truths and principles that stood out to me from this story of this miracle. But to keep our life application as simple as possible, let me just share these thoughts under two main headings today. Jesus' love for us, and then our love for Jesus. So let's begin with Jesus' love for us. Jesus' love for us. There are two verses that stand out to me that demonstrate just how much Jesus loves us. How He responds to us in our daily lives. Two key words that demonstrate His love for us. And the first word is the word providence. His providence. In John 2 and verse 3, Mary says to Jesus, they have no more wine. Now first, let me ask, don't you think Jesus already knew this? Yes. And second, don't you think that Jesus cared? Yes. And that, by golly, is the most amazing fact about this miracle. <laughs> See, at first glance, we might think that Jesus couldn't be bothered with such trivial concerns, that He doesn't pay attention to such insignificant matters in our lives. We read His response to His mother in verse 4, Woman, why do you involve Me? And we might get the impression that Jesus doesn't know, nor does He care about such small needs in the course of our daily lives. But not so. This is the rest of the story illustrates not only does Jesus understand our circumstances, but He wants to be involved in them. In fact, Jesus Himself reminds us in Matthew 6 and verse 8, remember your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Divine providence. They have no more wine. Maybe that describes your life today. No more wine. We all have crises in our lives. Some are huge, life-changing, defining moments. Some are small. No more wine. Unmet expectations, broken relationships, unemployment, debt, Health issues, sorrow and grief. So, 
what are we to do when we have no more wine? Exactly what Mary did. Look to Jesus. In His providence, He knows and He cares even about the little things in our lives. i got to tell you this story. When we were ministering in Napa, we had a young single mom and her son who began to come to our church. and She was trying to raise her son, doing the best she could. She's working a couple of jobs. It's really difficult. She was having a hard time making ends meet. We were helping her with our food ministry. Little did we know, we learned the story later, but as the story unfolded, it was on a Friday night that she and her son John had gone shopping with the very last of their money to buy groceries to get them through the rest of the month. And they were very meticulous. I mean, they spent every. I mean, you understand they spent everything. They had nothing left. And they got home that night, and Kim and John were putting their groceries away. And as they got ready for bed that night, horror of all horrors, Kim discovered they were out of toilet paper. Now, folks, I understand people existed for years without toilet paper, but that's kind of a necessity in our culture today. And Kim began to cry. And her son John came and hugged her and said, Mom, let's pray about it. Toilet paper? Okay. So they prayed about it. They went to bed that night, as Kim told the story later, she tossed and turned most of the night, finally got to sleep, kind of a restless sleep. But she was awakened the next morning by her son, John, jumping up and down on her bed. Mom, you won't believe it. God has answered our prayer. She goes, what? And he grabs her hand, and they run to the front window, and he throws open the window, and somebody had TP'd their house. By the way, we found out later it was the wrong house. They were supposed to do the one next door. But God didn't make a mistake. God didn't make a mistake. Yeah, God's concerned even about toilet paper. Let's read Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 out loud together. Would you read this with me? Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. So first, Jesus' love for us is demonstrated by His providence. Second, it is demonstrated by His excellence. His excellence. John 2, verse 10, after tasting the water turned to wine, the master of the banquet said, You have saved the best till now. 
Isn't that just like Jesus? Not only does He know and care about our needs, great or small, but He supplies our needs with excellence. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Ephesians 3 and verse 20. Now glory be to God, who by His mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or even dream of, infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. Enough said. So second, Jesus' love for us is demonstrated by His excellence. Jesus' love for us. Demonstrated by His providence and by His excellence. But let's look at the flip side of this too. Let's look at our love for Jesus. Again, there are two verses that stand out to me that demonstrate that how we should respond to Jesus in our daily lives. Two key words that demonstrate how much we love Jesus. The first word is our obedience. Our obedience. We must not overlook Mary's words to the servants in John 2 and verse 5. Do whatever He tells you. We all need to heed Mary's advice here. Do whatever He tells you. When in doubt, do whatever He tells you. When you don't know where to turn, do whatever He tells you. When faced with a dilemma, do whatever He tells you. When it doesn't make sense, do whatever He tells you. That pretty much sums up life. Do whatever He tells you. It is always right to do right. Our obedience. Let's read Jesus' words in John 14 out loud together. Would you read these with me? If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. See, the primary way that we demonstrate our love for Jesus is by our obedience. But, no, no buts. Do whatever He tells you. What if? No, do whatever He tells you. Whatever else we may learn from today's text, we must learn that miracles only happen when we do whatever He tells you. So first, our love for Jesus is demonstrated by our obedience. And then secondly, by our allegiance. Our allegiance... Again, at the end of verse 11, His disciples believed in Him. Let's stop for just a moment and consider those words, believed in. They come from a Greek word that's compound, a word that in its roots means much, much more than belief in the sense of mental or intellectual assent. In fact, it implied a yielding to or a surrender to, entrusting oneself to, giving oneself over to. In other words, these five disciples, Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, fully yielded and surrendered their lives to Jesus right here. They completely entrusted themselves. They gave themselves over to Him. They said, we are no longer in control of our lives. You are the Master. You are the Lord. It was a matter of allegiance. 
Is it okay if I be honest with you for a minute here? Not that I normally am not. (laughs) I don't know why I asked that question. Because even if you said no, I'm going to be anyway. (laughs) We live in a world where allegiance is neither demanded nor expected. Not liking your job? Get another one. Not getting along with your spouse? Get another one. Not enjoying your church? Get another one. Isaiah 48, verse 1. God confronts the Israelites and us with these words. Hear me, my people. You swear allegiance to the Lord without meaning a word of it. More than ever before, these desperate times, these end times, demand our allegiance. Jesus expects our undivided loyalty. We must fully yield and surrender our lives to Him. No more empty promises. No more pretense and hypocrisy. No half-hearted efforts. No compromise. Full and complete and undying allegiance. So second, our love for Jesus is demonstrated by our allegiance. Our love for Jesus demonstrated by our obedience and our allegiance. The miracles of Jesus. This morning we've looked at Jesus' very first miracle, water into wine, here in John 2, verses 1-11. through 11. Once again, here are some life applications to take home with us today from this text. First, about Jesus' love for us. His providence, they have no more wine. And His excellence. You've saved the best till now. And about our love for Jesus, our obedience, do whatever He tells you. And our allegiance. His disciples believed in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning... Reveal to us, I pray, exactly what You desired to teach us in this story of this first miracle. Water into wine? Not what we would have drawn up. But that's just You. You surprise us all the time by stepping into our life situations at just the right moment in just the right way to do just the right thing. Maybe not what we expect. Not what we would have drawn up, but what you know is best. I just believe this morning, Lord, that there may be somebody here who needs a fresh touch from you today. Somebody who needs a miracle. Somebody who needs some toilet paper. Somebody who needs some water turned into wine.
Jesus miracle worker, would you come right now and reveal your glory among us?